Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us this week on Dead to Rights, the podcast. I'm your host, Donna Carrick. In the midst of these busy lives we lead, I want to express our sincere gratitude to new and loyal listeners of the series, as well as to the many talented international authors who have made this project both possible and worthwhile. When we started this run at the beginning of 2018, we had no idea of the enthusiasm we'd find among authors and readers. It's obvious to me now that book lovers harbor a strong desire to know their favorite authors on a more meaningful level. And new writers are hungry for the insights, the tips, and encouragement that only established as well as new fellow authors can give. For me, this is the golden heart of the writing industry. As an author, a publisher, and a podcaster, there is nothing so powerful as bringing these glorious words to the world. To those of you who listen, whether you enjoy the industry and crafting tips, or whether you just like hearing a great story, we hope you'll subscribe and, t- and help us reach more readers and give these fantastic writers a huge platform. Whether you're on Google Play Music Podcasts or iTunes, be sure to share some love with a starred rating and help Dead to Rights move up in the rankings. And if you can share with your friends on social media, that would sure be a help as well. Today we're bringing you a double whammy, a fantastic interview with the author of the biological thriller Resistant, Rachel Sparks, as well as a chilling flash fiction piece by Andrea Kikuchi titled Leverage from the crime anthology World Enough and Crime, Carrick Publishing, 2014. But first, a moment of quiet respect for fallen Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. This is a truly horrific situation, one that almost defies the telling. But here's what's being alleged by Turkish officials who claim they have audiovisual of the event. U.S. permanent resident and Saudi citizen Mr. Jamal Khashoggi traveled to Istanbul to obtain necessary Saudi documents from the Saudi consulate in Turkey on October 2nd. The documents were needed in order to facilitate what should have been a time of joy, his pending wedding with his fiancée. According to ABC News, he first visited the Saudi consulate in Istanbul on September 28th to obtain a document certifying that he had divorced his ex-wife so that he could marry his Turkish fiancée. But he was told he would have to return and he arranged to come back on October 2nd. He was seen on CCTV arriving at 1.14 local time for his appointment, which was scheduled at 1.30 p.m. He had told friends that he'd been treated very warmly on his first visit, and he reassured them that he would not face problems. Despite this, he gave his fiancée two mobile phones and told her to call an advisor to Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan if he did not come back out. She ultimately waited for more than 10 hours outside the consulate and returned the following morning when Mr. Khashoggi had still not reappeared. 
Now, Turkish officials are saying that within two hours of his arrival at the Saudi embassy, he had been interrogated, tortured, killed, and dismembered by a 15-man Saudi hit squad with ties to the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, known as MBS, and his royal inner circle. What we know is this. One, the initial story put out by the Saudi government is that Khashoggi left the consulate building within moments of entering it, and they had no idea where he went from there. And they were planning to back that particular story up by using a body double. This is the latest we've learned. They had a body double lined up in advance of Khashoggi's arrival, who they, I suppose, uh, planned to have leave through the front entrance um, and be seen on CCTV. The next story we were told by President Trump, who had spoken that day with the Saudis' king, was that Khashoggi was most likely dead, the result of rogue killers in an operation gone bad. Meanwhile, Turkish officials have kept up the pressure for truth by threatening to release audio-video evidence they claim to hold in strong language, insisting they will not allow a cover-up. And uh, yesterday, according to CNN Istanbul, After 18 days in which Saudi Arabia adamantly denied that any harm had come to Khashoggi at its consulate in Istanbul, it committed a startling about-face. Not only did Riyadh admit that Khashoggi came to a violent end, it pinned the blame on some of the closest aides to MBS, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. So to say that this latest story stretches credulity has got to be the understatement of the year. As writers, whether we follow a passion for fiction or fact, we must share one common rallying cry, that the right of free speech and freedom of the press is tantamount to any civilization, and that without our freedoms there is no truth, no art, no society worth living in. I never knew Jamal Khashoggi, but I felt the flames of anger this week over the smear campaign that began heating up in order to justify his horrific murder. And so I say, my tip for all writers today is run your freedom banner high upon the flagpole. The time for justice and truth is now. I'm not a journalist. I'm a mere writer of fiction. But I believe, as Mr. Stephen King has been quoted, that fiction is the truth inside the lie. And our truth as writers must never be silenced. My review this week is an audible book titled All You Can Ever Know, a memoir by Nicole Chung, narrated beautifully by Janet Song, Highbridge, a division of recorded books. This book is filled with some less than comfortable truths for adoptive parents. As an adoptive parent myself, in 2003, Alec and I traveled to Nanning in Guangxi Zhuang in the far south of China to bring home our daughter, There are parts of all you can ever know that have threatened to break my heart. Chung reached deep into her bag of courage to rip out memories of racism, bigotry, and hate of a kind no child should ever be exposed to. And through it all, we learn of her strong desire to shield her adoptive parents from the hurtful knowledge that their love, their caring, and their very best of intentions have simply not been quite enough. The story is told with love and respect for both her adoptive and her biological families. Chung leads us through the playground of her childhood, a place of loneliness, self-doubt, and sorrow. 
If you're interested in the subject of adoption, either as someone who has experienced it as a child adopted or as a parent or potential parent, I highly recommend you rip off the bandage and immerse yourself in the experiences of Nicole Chung before you take the plunge. And I say this with mixed feelings. I am a staunch supporter of the role adoption plays in any society. No matter how civilized we become, no matter how enlightened, there will always be adults who long for a child to love and children who need the strength and warmth of a loving parent. In my humble view, adoption is no more or less natural than any other building block, than any other method of creating a family. Since time began, it has always provided a vital part of humanity. However, it is far too important, too critical a step to take without first opening our eyes, and Nicole Chung brings us another perspective, one we need to incorporate into our family discussions early and honestly. And now I'm delighted to bring you our interview for today with Rachel Sparks, author of Resistant, Emergent, and The Killigrew Witch. Rachel was born in Waco, Texas. She graduated with a degree in microbiology from Texas A&M University. After a decade-long career in Austin, Texas as a transplant specialist, she joined a startup fighting healthcare-acquired infections, thus satisfying her lifelong interest in infectious diseases and the science of human health. After relocating with her husband, daughter, and mother to Asheville, North Carolina, she finally put her first novel onto the page. In her free time, she serves on the board of Asheville Museum of Science and loves to cook, brew, garden, and spend time with friends and family. So please give a huge Dead to Rights welcome to Rachel Sparks. Rachel, it's Donna Carrick, and welcome to Dead to Rights. How are you this morning? I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's a beautiful day in the North Country. (laughs) Um, Now, for those who are listening, Rachel has a degree in microbiology, and she is the author of Resistant, about a strain that threatens humanity and the woman who holds the potential cure. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about Resistant, Rachel? Sure. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of based on the premise that you know the world has got to a place where antibiotics don't work anymore, which is truly you know around the corner. Um, and the the primary, the main character is um, she's just a young girl, um, but but still you know not not a child. It's not age um, or young adult novel, but she's surviving with her father um, out on a farm in Woodhull, Massachusetts, and. It's really about how she's discovering that she might be the route to solving um, the the world's crisis, and um, and how she decides whom she's going to trust, and um, sort of the adventure that stems from there, trying to to find the right place to be to discover the cure. Okay, and it seems like you came to this particular branch of fiction quite naturally, um, being a scientist and someone who studied microbiology. Um, what prompted you to put it into fiction? Oh, well, a couple of things. Um, you know, I've been um, thinking about the the story for a while, but um, I had a dream that that was actually one of the final scenes of the book, and it was so compelling, and it and it told me who the characters were that I, I kind of 
got the itch to really put it on paper. Um, and then secondly, I was uh, having a fun night with my husband, and we were daring each other to do something big with our lives and go out to things we'd always dreamed of doing. And I admitted I'd always wanted to write a novel, and um, he had his own dreams, and so we dared each other. Um, his dare was that he had to build a piece of furniture in three months, and mine was that I had to write the first five chapters of a novel. And uh, I started, and then nine months later, I finished it. Nine months. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> That's perfectly in keeping with the birth of any creation, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> That's terrific. Yeah, well, yeah. I love that. I love that you um you dared each other. It sounds like uh, as a couple, you really do push each other to grow and to pursue things, and and that's so important. Um, uh, but seeing it to completion is quite a different thing. How how did you how did you persevere through all those earlier days? Um, you mean before that I before I written it or during the writing? During the writing process, when you had no idea it was going to be published, when you had no idea that uh, you know it was going to be what you wanted it to be, um, a lot of people sure. give up. I think that for me, I was writing it really for myself, and and that dare was both you know meeting the dare that he had given me, but that dare was a personal dare to see what I was capable of and if I was capable of what I thought. Um, I had always daydreamed of writing as well as the authors that I admired, um, and I certainly don't think I'm there yet, and I have a lot of a lot of learning and, and growing to do. But uh, I think that just knowing that I was accomplishing something only for myself mm-hmm. was uh, was a driver. Yeah, I hear that. I hear that a lot from creative people that um, the only way you really can go forward is to do it for your own self and for your own love of doing it um, because you don't know what the outcome's going to be and there's so many ways to become discouraged as you go. Um, if you're doing it for yourself, none of those discouragements will really affect you. It's so true. And, you know, you, you said yourself, you don't really know what it's going to become. And, and that was true for me. I guess I'm what I've now learned is called a, a pantser, not as much of a plotter. Story told itself to me more than I told it. So mm-hmm. while I was certainly typing it, I felt like I didn't know where it was headed as I was writing it. Well, that that may be true, but you, you also had a background and you had enough knowledge on the subject matter to be able to let that story direct itself without going too far off the rails. So would you say that's a fair statement? Yes, I guess that is true, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't hold with those who say, write only what you know. Um, I absolutely mm-hmm. don't, because I think we have to learn and grow and keep it interesting for ourselves, or else our readers are not going to be interested. On the other hand, there's certainly something to having enough basic knowledge of your subject matter to be able to carry your story. Sure, and that begins. I think that writing what you know is a really safe place to start if you're writing for the first time, um, something as a, a larger project. Of course, I've been writing my whole life, but um, to take a novel on, um, I think it's a good place to start where you know, but what I personally believe is that there's no end to how much you can know in your lifetime. Exactly. I find that, yeah, I'm sort of autodidact, and I just adore learning new information and, and waste many hours of my day just reading about things that I really don't have any need to know more about, but I love learning. So I think that, you know, writing what you know doesn't have to limit you at all. You just need to keep knowing more. Yes, that is said much better than I worded it. Thank you very much for that, Rachel, because that's exactly what I'm trying to express is, um, 
yes, write what you know, but know as much as you can about enough varied topics that you're going to keep yourself and your readers interested. Um, and make it fun. And make it fun for yourself. Um, now, yeah. was there anything in your study of microbiology that alarmed you, just to get down to a real topic? Um, I, I think so. Um, you know, my study was focused on the, the growing resistance, and this was really back in um, in the 90s when we were first starting to see methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, just to get a little bit technical, but what we all call MRSA. Um, we were just beginning to see those infections start, and, um, and really we were only seeing them overseas, and so um, my college thesis was about that. So I think I always followed that particular topic, and then my career led into knowing um, more about it, and it was my job to know the most about it. So um, that, that also, also really helped inform what I needed to know to create, um, you know, create a world that was posting about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and world, world creating is really a big part of, of writing, especially when you're writing something that hasn't yet happened um, or is futuristic or is fantastical, any of those things. You've got to create the world in which those events can occur. And world building is quite difficult. Uh, there are entire courses and workshops just on world building. Um, now, did you did you uh, indulge in any of uh, those types of courses or workshops to, to help you nail down that aspect? I'm a little ashamed to admit I didn't. Um, I find that I think I think I learn a little bit better on my own rather than in course settings and in, and in group settings. Mm-hmm. I can still am open to trying those out, but you know, for me, my world creation was happening in my head. Um, Oftentimes, I wake up in the morning, and I, for the first, I think of them as the blue morning hours when, you know, the light is really dark and blue, and, and you're the only one who is awake, and maybe you're the only one who's dreaming on paper while everyone else is dreaming on their pillows. Mm-hmm. I, I was building that world then, and it's certainly nothing like a lot of the fantasy worlds that people have developed that are just so tremendously detailed, you know, um, but just imagining what would be the economic impacts of a world where... Um, medicines didn't work like they used to, the economic impacts of a world where half of our, not half, but a, a portion of our population was decimated. How does that really play out for, for actual living Americans, because my, my novel was set in the U.S., how does that play out for that, uh, that day-to-day life? You know, would our mm-hmm. infrastructure be able to maintain just lots of details that I would ask myself and, and sort of try to answer with more research. Yeah, I like your your description about uh, the world being built in your head and, uh, you know, dreaming on paper while the rest of the world is dreaming on the pillow because I would suspect that many writers can really relate to what you're saying there. It's kind of what we do. Um <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about your protagonist? I know she's a young woman who potentially holds the cure. Sure. Well, Rory is um, a young woman, but, but a grown woman, who lives with her father after their mother, her mother has passed away from the infection. And they live out on a farm, so she really has to be um, a self-reliant, um, capable individual they, um, you could say they live off the land, but in, in the world that I've imagined, there's still the kind of resources that you would need to uh, keep teaching yourself, and, and she does have to do that. Her father is a PhD, and she wants to be one, but 
while she's um, trying to accomplish her education, it's really just a self-driven thing that she has to do without any um, certifying body telling her that she is, you know, has a master's or has a, a degree. So she's a, kind of a self-learned person, taught by her parents. Her father is um, a PhD climatologist who knows a lot about the, the way that the um, changing of the climate has interacted with uh, the what was made in terms of antibiotics. And uh, and she's a little odd. She's, um, you know, she has a little bit of a temper, and, and I imagine that to be one of her, her largest character flaws. Um, but as she's um, not exposed to a whole lot of people in her daily life and doesn't get to have a lot of social interactions, she, um, she's still a kind individual who, you know, who, who thinks about others and, and thinks in a very genuine way about the world around her. I like her already. She sounds like my kind of person. Just enough temper to give her an edge, right? And to, to keep the real baddies at bay. <laughs> exactly. I hope so. Yeah. Now, at what point did you know you actually had a book that was publishable? Because we've talked about your writing for yourself as you go through the process. But at some point, you, you realize that you're really writing for publication. At what point did you realize that? Oh my gosh, you know, that's a really challenging question. I I know that when I was finishing it and telling my husband, <clears throat> I think I'm coming to the end of this, I think I've actually really finished a full a full novel, um, he was the first to say, why don't you look at trying to get it published? Where I think maybe while I had been dabbling with that daydream in my, in my head, I hadn't it out loud. And, um, and so I let a friend also um, read it and... She was so encouraging. Um, she actually likes my genre. She, um, you know, she was kind of primed to be someone who could actually give honest feedback even as a friend. And so I, I really trusted her feedback. And she also passed along to another friend who is an, an avid reader of all genres and, and gave me really positive feedback too. So I went down the Kindle route first where just, Thinking, I, I don't know how to do this publication thing. I don't know how to find an agent. I certainly queried, but I, I didn't. I didn't have a lot of luck and, uh, mm-hmm. and a lot of responses. But I certainly haven't gone on the on the journey that I've heard some authors go on, where they, you know, queried seven hundred and twenty agents. Or they query for 20 years, and uh, I certainly don't have that kind of patience in my life. I think I'm a little more like your Rory. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I am too. And I work in a startup world where uh, we, you know, we have to find solutions to things quickly and be nimble and agile. And so I, I thought that Kindle was a good answer. I thought that the Amazon Kindle platform was a great place for me to just start and maybe get a little bit of exposure without my having to make a huge investment. So I went with that and um, and I continued to look for uh, sources to find agents. Now, I live in small town um, North Carolina in Asheville in the mountains. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're not very we're not very plugged in here to the publishing world of New York and London and, and whatnot. So I managed to um, score a little bit of time with who uh, a couple of ladies who um, run a wonderful literary agency called Gold Leaf Literary Agency. And I really thought that they were they were agents. They're actually they're actually publicists, and so they sat down with me for coffee and had a long chat. And they recommended that I um, look into the publisher that I went with, which is um, Strike Press. 
and it's a hybrid publisher, okay. and I've really, really, really enjoyed working with them. I was so lucky to be accepted into their program, and um, it, it's been very fun, but they, they provide such a great learning environment for new authors like me. I'm so glad that you brought this up, too, Rachel, about uh, using Kindle as a, a basic platform and um, looking for new types of publishers and new types of uh, agents because it's a changing industry. And we haven't talked okay. a lot about this yet on Dead to Rights, but it's certainly a topic that I did intend to delve into more for our listeners. If you're a writer who's out there, you don't need to query for 20 years. Certainly, I encourage all new writers to query because it helps you find your footing and it helps you get mm -hmm. legitimate feedback that can help you to improve your art. I always view mm -hmm. writing, in particular fiction, as an art. Um, you know, but I have a business background, much like you, and mm -hmm. I believe in doing things and moving forward and... Um, you know, not using the excuse of rejection to hold you back. Because to me, that is oh, an yeah. excuse. The people who succeed in this world, they're rejected just as much as the rest of us. And uh, <laughs> they've just decided that they're going to do what they're going to do. It doesn't mean that I think I excuse sloppy work, because I do not. If you get feedback that tells you that you need more creative writing skills, or you need uh, mm -hmm. to enhance this or to enhance that take it seriously and look into it and go do it. And it seems to me that querying is a really wonderful um, exercise in learning your voice and yes. how, to, how to promote, how to sell yourself and your story. Because so many of us, I think, write a story and we're talking in it. And, and then it's very, very difficult for us to explain that that to someone and give that elevator pitch and elevator pitches are what we talk about in uh, in the startup world constantly but when you just ask me to tell you a little bit about resistance at the top of the podcast <laughs> I feel like I failed miserably so oh I think no you didn't you did a wonderful <laughs> job you you did a wonderful job telling us about your book Rachel honestly I'm not I'm not kidding you on that I it didn't occur to me for a second that you'd left anything important out you gave a great synopsis and that speaks to exactly what you're saying people get out there and query just because I'm an independent yeah. publisher doesn't mean that I think my way is the only way you really do need to get out and query it's a critical step I don't want anyone to skip it but what I am saying sure. is that 20 years of querying querying becomes an excuse to <laughs> not express oh, your work for the uh, world yeah. and I think you know if I can speak a little bit about the hybrid publishing that I have become a little bit more in, um, you know knowledgeable about it's that um, I think of it as a, as a next step of evolution of the way that the, the publishing business may work. And, and as you said, the business, um, if you look at the way that a lot of startups work, not all of them are working great. Not the whole program as a whole, but the whole environment isn't, isn't um, always working perfectly, but they embrace um, trying new things and, yes. and failing as a form of learning. And so um, I think that looking at the different types of new publication pathways out there is, is really worth it. You know, the, the thing about hybrid publishing, She Writes Press and Spark Press, which are, are, um, are both partnered, uh, and now, now I'm under the Spark Press imprint. 
Um, if that they have, you know, they do have a screening process up front. They are not looking for just anybody to, to publish, and they're not a vanity publisher. Mm-hmm. They are they are seeking to publish things that people will really, really, really enjoy and buy. They are also um, aligned with Ingram, so you still get this wonderful benefit of the same sales force and sales network out there getting into um, all the stores that you could hope to be in. And and then um, on the back end, they're they're really a a very professional publication um, system. With you have editors, you have publicists, you have a publisher who's guiding you through it. And and I think that there is um, it's a smaller one. So I think the the lovely thing about that is I've really gotten to know their team and, and I get to work yes. with them closely and not feel like I'm held at arm's length. Yeah, yeah. And to the people who slam independent or small press. As vanity publishing, let me say this, there certainly is such a thing as vanity publishing. Um, I would never deny that. And I am a huge advocate of create the best art that you can as an artist, as a writer, Uh, whatever your genre is, create the best you can, polish it the best you can, market it the best you can, publish it the best you can. But I will say that um, if you're working with a professional in a small indie house, or in a, um, a, a startup venture, if they are professional and they love the industry, they're going to do well by you. You're not going to have uh-huh. to feel that your work is vanity published. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's so well put. You know, I, I think you know that you're with the right publisher when they're excited about your work and they listen to your needs and concerns and interests and also guide you in ways that you might be, uh, you know, a little bit misguided. I can remember... Um, joking with my publisher that uh, I'd like to jump on the hashtag of resistance um, that you see all over Twitter and I could get a little bit of free press out of that. And she said, Rachel, that's not how that works. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I could see that. I could see that light bulb going off. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was a brilliant notion. But yeah. I'm really glad that Rick Warner let me know that's not how that works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not necessarily the best idea, although it's a bright idea. <laughs> uh, what's next? What's next for Rory? And uh, do you have a sequel to Resistant? Thanks for asking. I, I do have um, a sequel in the works, and um, and I was really enjoying writing it because, again, it was, it was about learning. I was getting to teach myself so much more, and it dives a little bit more into the the climate side of the, the new world that I had built. And um, and then while uh, while writing it, I had I had spent some time in Maine and um, just got this bug in my brain for a new story that had to come out. So uh, that sequel has been sitting, um, just resting, taking breath for a second while I finished another work in progress uh, that's um, about a woman who is... Um, in modern day and investigating a, uh, a rare infection of um, a brain amoebal infection in some kids in Maine. And um, she is suffering from her own kind of um, career setback that was that was very embarrassing for her. And so she, she's uh, about um, her, her patients and, and in diving into their case, uh, she begins to see visions of um, her own ancestor who lived in Maine in the 1700s and who um, is, is 
seem to have had a similar experience. And, and the, the stories are told together, um, in, you know, in parallel. And uh, it's, it's, it's really been fun. It's a little witchy. It's a little bit coastal. It's a little bit, a little bit of science fiction. Um, probably just, you know, kind of a snap of it. Is there, is there a paranormal and, uh, element or is it more flashback and historical? Um, I'm sorry, say that again, I couldn't hear you. Was there a paranormal element that connected the two characters, or was it more flashback historical? Um, a little bit more flashback historical. I'm not, I probably am not yet, I don't think I'm qualified yet to dive in the paranormal, but, um, but like I say, there's a little bit of witchiness in it, and her, her ancestor was believed to be a witch, mm-hmm. and was also, was also, um, part Native American, and so, um, you know, there's a little bit of that, that, um, suggestion that, that maybe that's what's connecting them, is that spirituality and that ability to, um, sort of reach across the ages and see through other people's eyes. That, that's really fascinating. Uh, when do you expect that one to be complete? Um, I'm thinking in the next, um, month I'll be able to, to close the final, um, you know, kind of final plot twist at the end. And then I certainly need to do a lot of revising. This one ended up being richer and longer than resistant, um, which I love, but it'll, it'll take some time for me to make sure that all of my little, um, you know, seeds and, and what do they say, guns on the wall? You know, if you put a gun on the wall in one room, you need to be sure that you take it off in the next chapter and use mm-hmm. it somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, all of those little bits um, would, crop, would, would crop up for me as I was writing and surprise me. I, I remember I was sitting at the kitchen table writing yesterday and, and just gave myself shivers because something looped back around that I hadn't expected to be able to. Um, so those all, all need to be sure that they're braided tightly at the end, and mm-hmm. then um, hopefully I can, you know, have it revised in a few months and, and ready for me to, to offer out for... As um, a writer, I have to tell for, you, one of the greatest one of the greatest thrills is when you give yourself shivers when you're writing. <laughs> <laughs> it really is the experience that encapsulates many, many months of hard work when you all of a sudden you're writing away and... Something you've written gives you shivers. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's truly addictive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think addictive is the best term for it. I, I you can't wait till you can do that again. And um, and so I, while resistance comes out in October, I think that um, I think that this novel can certainly can certainly get polished up for a while before it's uh, it's got any any place to be. But I may I may try to. Um, I admire so much short story writers, and I don't seem to be very good at it. And your work, especially, I've been enjoying the the Septiles book. And, um, oh, Septil, Septil, okay. thank you very much. I'm so glad that you you've been reading that. Um, I never considered myself a short story writer either, but um, I think it does help us to encapsulate what we're trying to say a little bit more succinctly. I'm still not mm-hmm. very good at that, but uh, that's the hope <laughs> that it's like. Um, <laughs> As, a, as a, a novel writer, which is my love, I love to meander away with thoughts. And um, it really is all about that process for me. And short story writing helps me rein that in a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. A little bit, you know? That's kind of what I hope that short story practice would help me be a bit more succinct. 
and um, I, I may try to take a portion of that um, that novel and, that I'm tentatively calling the Killigrew Witch, and, and see it. You know, boiling down some portions of it into a short story would would a help me with the revisions, and b uh, might be something that you know I could try to publish um, in a a feature or you know in a submission to um, to a journal or, or magazine and mm-hmm. and give a little. Yeah, there are still a lot of uh, magazines and e-zines that uh, are looking for for short stories. And uh, I I have a number of friends who do publish uh, at least semi-regularly in some of the bigger ones, particularly the crime magazines like Hitchcock, etc., because a a lot of my colleagues are crime writers. And uh, I I haven't published that way. I've kind of uh, done, because I've done anthologies under Carrick Publishing. So that's been my venue, really. I've gathered up from writers who I network with, um, submissions for short stories. And I've done two anthologies that way. And I also belong to a group in uh, Canada called the Maydams of Mayhem, and uh, Carrick Publishing has yeah. now published three I of their own And the name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it kind of keeps me writing even when I'm really busy with publishing and podcasting and my day job, which um, is still quite the factor. So it keeps me writing, and that's really important for me. I don't want to lose touch with the writing because there will come a time when I retire and my hope is that uh, the writing will become a full-time job. So I don't want to lose touch and have to start from ground zero again. That's, very, that's a very wise approach, yeah. And so few of us, I think, are able to leave our day jobs. So um, it, it's something that we we define time for, but it's it's so worth it. For those, those moments where you give yourself the shivers, right? Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> I think it's happened to almost every writer at least once, and if it hasn't, please keep writing. <laughs> keep writing till you shiver. <laughs> That's our advice for writers today. Write till you shiver. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, thank you very much, Rachel. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing uh, your novel, Resistant, which, uh, listeners, you can find on Amazon and... Um, also, Rachel, please tell our listeners where they can find you online. Oh, I'm a, I've got my own website at rachelsparks.com. I think that's a good start and tells you a little bit about my background and the other things I'm working on. And um, I probably need to start blogging, but I, I, I tend to think that no one really cares that much about my, my day-to-day. So um, I'll, be, I'll be probably posting a little bit there because I'm about to get into the business of recording my own audiobook for Resistance. Um, oh, actually excellent. Begun. Excellent. And, You've got a nice enunciation for it, so please do. <laughs> <laughs> That's something that oh, I want to do, too. That's a, a goal of mine for 2019. So, yeah, is, uh, I might try to blog a little bit about that so that other um, authors can, can benefit from my learning there. But yes. Donna, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I, You're I enjoy very listening welcome. to it, and it's such an honor to be on it. Thank you. You're welcome. And that's rachelsparks.com, R-A-C-H-A-E-L-S-P-A-R-K-S.com for our listeners. And stay on the line for just a moment, Rachel. It was a pleasure having you on. I want to thank Rachel Sparks for joining us today on Dead to Rights, the podcast. Our story today is a flash piece by Andrea Kikuchi that first appeared in World Enough and Crime, Carrick Publishing 2014, titled Leverage. 
Andrea lives in St. John, New Brunswick, with her husband and two children. Her stories have been published in the Tokyo Notice Board, Broken Jaw Press, and most recently, Hard Times in the Maritimes. She teaches creative writing classes and is the co-chair of the Fog Lit Readers and Writers Festival in St. John. Learn more about Andrea at her blog site, andreakakuchi.wordpress.com, and that's A-N-D-R-E-A-K-I-K-U-C-H-I.wordpress.com. Leverage by Andrea Kakuchi. Editor's Note. Short, sweet, and wonderfully vicious, Andrea Kakuchi delves into the mind of one disgruntled employee. Mary discovered proof that Bill was having an affair. Perfect. It was just the leverage she needed to save herself. All through the morning, she'd watched people walk into Bill's office and walk out a few minutes later, devastated because they'd been downsized. At least most of them were devastated, with the exception of a select few who'd been given generous severance packages. Mary watched as her co-workers packed their belongings into bankers' boxes and were led to the door by security guards. Lives deeply altered. Families let down, all for the sake of the bottom line. It's not going to be me, Mary said to herself. She had years of service to the company, time away from her husband and children, out of loyalty misguided loyalty to a company that believed it owed her nothing but an empty box and an escort to the door. This was not going to happen to her. She waited for her name to be called, fondling a photograph in her hand. She glanced at it from time to time. After decades of being nice, it was her turn to be naughty. Bill hung his head out from around the corner. At least he gave her the courtesy of calling her name instead of having his secretary summon her. She slowly walked in and took a seat in the excessively large office overlooking the ocean. Bastard, she thought to herself. How could he keep all of this when people were losing their livelihoods? Mary, as you may know, we've been experiencing some financial constraints. Unfortunately, we can't keep everyone, and I know that you have a number of years of service here. Mary's mind wandered. She heard only bits and pieces of what Bill was saying. Hard work hasn't gone unnoticed, blah, blah, blah. It wasn't until he said, we have to let you go, that she started paying attention. Interesting, she said. Interesting? Mary placed the picture on his desk. It showed Bill and Judy, one of the accountants at the staff Christmas party. There wasn't any mistletoe in the picture, but he and Judy were being extremely festive. Interesting, she repeated. Bill was mortified. Where did you get this? Doesn't matter, she said. What do you mean it doesn't matter? Where I found this doesn't matter. What it means is what matters. It means I'm not going anywhere, Bill. In fact, I really like the view from this office. And that has been Leverage by Canadian author Andrea Kikuchi, as featured in World Enough and Crime, an anthology of crime stories, Carrick Publishing, 2014. Are you a published author? 
Would you like to be profiled on Dead to Rights, the podcast? We'll soon be looking to fill slots for 2019 weekly features, and we'd love to hear from you at Publishing at rogers.com. Be sure to say Dead to Rights interview in the subject line. Do you have a question for any of our featured authors regarding the book business? Do you have a theme or topic you'd like us to address? We love hearing from readers and writers alike. You can touch base with us at deadtorights.ca, on Facebook under Dead to Rights, or on Twitter at Dead to Rights Pod. Of course, you can always find me, Donna Carrick, on Facebook under my personal page or as Carrick Publishing. We're also tweetable at Donna underscore Carrick or at Alex underscore Carrick or at Carrick Pub. If you have questions related to the book industry for any of our authors, don't hesitate to reach out through our online forums. Be sure to join us next week when we'll bring you our interview with Alison Bruce, author of Ghostwriter. Reading will be Family Values by Sylvia Maltash Warsh from 13 by the Maydams of Mayhem. And that was Carrick Publishing 2013. Thanks for joining us. See you next week. Free, yet it rides. Let it rot.